This is day three of BAFTA's Guru Live, a series of talks and discussions to inspire you to creative success. I'm Rihanna Dillon. Have you ever struggled to perfect your cover letter or file your receipts? Wished you'd taken clearer notes in the meeting with the person about that thing? Freelancing is a hard graft, so get some tips on representing yourself successfully, polishing up your CV, and making the most of those all-important networking opportunities. From agent Sarah Putt. So, how to be a successful freelancer? Only the fittest survive. It's tough being freelance. There's a lot of competition. Just by sitting at home and being hugely talented doesn't mean that people are going to find out who you are, where you are, and start employing you. So you've kind of got to get yourself out there in order to get to the top. Um, you know, I always say that I hated being freelance. I was freelance a long time ago in production so much that I set up a whole company around myself in order to avoid it. Yeah. So I have huge respect and admiration for all of you. But you need loads and loads of skills, as well as the talent as a director of photography or a director or a writer. You need to be strategic, professional, organized, a team player, determined, good company, polite. These are all words that when we were asking some of our clients what they thought key skills were, they were coming up with. So the ups and downs of freelancing. Yeah, the benefits are you get freedom, you get variety, and you can choose if you get to that level of success. But the negatives are, yeah, you have a lot less security, a lot of uncertainty, you're always searching for the next job, and you, know, you have to be your own PR expert, your own marketing manager, your own financial director. You have to have all of those skills or get to a stage where you can employ other people to do it for you. So, survival skills. One of the things that we find really helps people is to see themselves as a business to professionalise yourself, to create a distance between the you that sits in the pub on a Friday night with your mates and the you that is a professional director, a professional production designer, a professional writer. So what we're going to have a quick talk about today is how to make a good impression on paper, online, in person and on set, for those of you that that's relevant to. And the fact that you're going to have to constantly hunt for jobs you're going to have to negotiate for yourself, certainly at the early stages of your career, and keep on top of your money and your tax. So how do you make a good impression? I'm sure all of you have been doing a lot of that over the past few days. Basically, there's traditional networking and there's online networking, and both of them are incredibly important. Pretty much all the time, working or not working, you will be networking. And if you're aware of that and take advantage of it, you're going to have a lot more success in terms of making those contacts. So you can do it on set, at industry events. The main thing is to know what you want to get out of any event. Rather than kind of randomly, hello, I'm, I'm here at Guru Live and I'm just kind of going to talk to lots of people, but I don't really know what I want those conversations to be. I don't really know what I want to find out. I don't really know what I want to say. And what we find with our trainees is that a lot of the time they'll come to networking events and they'll randomly hand out lots and lots of cards and they think the number of people they talk to is an indicator of the success they're having. It's not. Give yourself a break. You know, if you talk to two really useful people during an evening or during a day of networking, then you're doing really, really well. These things, and I'll, I'll say this again and again, it's about being a marathon, not a sprint. It's about building relationships. So research the people that you want to meet and be prepared when you meet them. 
in terms of what you want to say, how you're going to follow up. So networking is about building relationships. It's also about building relationships at all levels. Again, a lot of people starting their careers think that they want to be talking to the person who's like, hey, really up there at the top of their careers. Yes, that's great. You know, and really interesting and can give you some really good insights on people's journeys. But to be blunt, a lot of the people who are now at the top of their careers started 25 years ago when the industry was so different than it is now. You need to be talking to people of your own level and one or two rungs above you or with five years more experience than you've got. Those are the people who can really kind of key in and help you. It's a conversation in which you show interest in other people, not just expecting them to show interest in you. It's reciprocal. Build reciprocal relationships. How can you help each other? And it's a long-term, continuous process. It isn't about stalking high-end heads of department, writers, directors, producers. It isn't about talking only about yourself. And it isn't just about getting your next job or a quick fix. It's a long-term thing, and it will pay off down the line. Sometimes it'll pay off immediately, but not necessarily. And be self-aware of the impression you're creating. It takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. So, your brand is communicated by how you look, your body language, your manners, how well you listen, how you act under stress, and the things you choose to share. And that counts both offline, in the real day-to-day -day world, and online. So, how do you build your online brand? I think, as much as anything, it's about separating what is personal from what is professional. And I'm sure a lot of you have already done this. How many people have websites already? So a lot of you. Um, it can be incredibly useful to have a website. It can also be really, really confusing for the person looking at the website. So again, like when you go to a networking event and you need to know what it was is you want to achieve out of that, who it is you want to talk to, likewise, you need to know what you want that website for. Don't have a website just for the sake of having a website. Because, you know, if you're, for instance, working as a camera assistant and you have a website as a director of photography, is that giving a mixed message to people? And how do you deal with that? If you have a website as a director, but you're also working in some other area of the industry, earning your day-to-day -day living at the moment, does that give a mixed message? I'm not saying it does, it's just something you need to consider and how to deal with that. But it can showcase your work and make you more contactable and help build your profile. So you need to think about, you know, how expensive and complicated and time-consuming it's going to be, how quickly and often you're going to need to update it, whether you're going to have a hosted site or a free one, how are people going to find it and see it? It's lovely if it's sitting there, but if it isn't getting any traffic towards it, then it's a pretty pointless exercise and can be an expensive one in time, if not in money. Um, and for example, you know, LinkedIn combines your contacts with the search and their massive user base. So it can be really, really effective to combine your LinkedIn profile and make sure that it is referring people to your website. LinkedIn, how many of you LinkedIn? Yeah. Do you find it useful? Okay, then you're probably not using it correctly. 
honestly, um, and I'm not an expert in this, Nicola, my colleague, is, and you know, we haven't got time to go into it in detail, but really, really, we find with all of our clients, or a lot of our clients, who come to use it in a more effective way, that they then find it more useful to them. So again, it's about building this professional profile and working out what you want LinkedIn to do for you. So list your experience and credits. It's more informal than your CV, but be putting in keywords that are relevant to what you do in order that you will drive traffic to it. Personalize that job title strap line underneath your name. A lot of people don't do that. Put a clear professional photo up there so people can recognize your industry events. And as I was saying, link it to your website or external videos to showcase your work and again, drive traffic to it. Uh, there are pros and cons of being in LinkedIn groups. I think there are probably more cons than pros, unless it is particular groups like Out of Guru Live or whatever that you are setting up yourself. So that's a kind of moot point, really. And LinkedIn etiquette, be really strict about who you connect to. With LinkedIn, with Twitter, it's all about quality, not about quantity. You know, what is important is that it is people you've worked with who are professionals. It's about people you have met and have a relationship with. Don't just randomly see all those, oh, you might want to connect with da, 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 da. That's where people go wrong. They just think, I'm going to have loads and loads of connections. That's going to increase the likelihood of me getting something useful like an introduction or work from it. Honestly, it's not. It's white noise, white noise. So less is more. Um, and ask for people's <coughs> recommendations and endorse other people wisely. Don't just you know, endorse somebody because you think it might be a nice thing to do. Again, Twitter. I think Twitter can be incredibly useful, but again, you need to be fairly specific about it. Follow heads of departments, virtually attend conferences, share articles, crowdsource information, it's something, you know, I do a great deal of on Twitter. Showcase your work, find jobs. An awful lot of our clients share jobs between each other and find work through Twitter. I mean, I can't say that, that necessarily works in the writing space, but it certainly works as technicians and as directors. So, tweet your way into a job. Be focused. Tweet about industry-related things, but, you know, obviously maintain people's confidentiality. Don't say anything up there that you wouldn't say in person. And follow the people that you'd like to work with or for. And follow the people that they follow. Don't worry about who follows you. That's irrelevant. It's more important that you have you know, quality people that you are following. And build contacts. Again, these are all long-term endeavors. They're not quick fixes. Facebook friends, yeah, Facebook just make sure you're using the privacy settings and have a clear policy of who you will friend. Work colleagues and drunken photos just don't mix. I'm sure you're all aware of that, but it is amazing how many people just don't seem to get their heads around that. You know, it's something I find very difficult because I have a business profile and you know, obviously I have friends who have nothing to do with the industry. But work out what your parameters are. Join groups, watch and learn, find and use industry intelligence, but be discreet about it. And then there's other sources such as Hive and Scoop It. But most important, what story are you telling online? You all Googled yourself? It's amazing what can come up. 
And how do the people that you admire present themselves? How do the directors whose work you really want to be doing, how do they present themselves online? And build a biography that works across all these platforms at different lengths, which we're now going to go and, and talk to. So, CVs. Again, work out the job that you want it to do when it's going off into the world without you, either online or in a very old-fashioned way in the post, but probably more likely online. It's a hook to get people interested. It's a calling card and it gets you through the door. It's a less is more situation, again. Don't try and put everything onto that poor little piece of A4 or two pieces of A4, and it should never be more than two pieces of A4. It should demonstrate why you fit the job. So tweak every CV that you're sending to that specific job that you're going out for. One size does not fit all with CVs, not even way down the line. You know, with our heads of department, with the directors I represent, I will tweak their biographies, I will tweak their CVs, you know, in terms of who I'm sending it out to. So put the most relevant information at the top, i.e., dead obvious, but feature film credits if you're applying for a feature film. And if there isn't relevant experience, find evidence of similar skills, whatever they may be. And if you are a trainee or an assistant, and that's the job you're going for, with that particular CV, put that at the top. Do not put that you are a director or a DOP or a production designer unless that is the job that you are going for. A CV shows who you've worked with and your personal relationships are your career currency. Everybody neatly puts referees at the end of their CV. It's lovely, but believe me, people do not get to the end of the CV before they pick up the phone to the first name that they recognise. And they say, oh, I've got a CV here from Anna. She worked with her on this show. What's she like? So if you have had a bad relationship, and it does happen with anybody on any production or in any kind of business relationship, don't have them anywhere near your CV. Because mark my words, they'll just by chance be the first person that that future potential employer phones up. And what those names give you is that credibility. So producers, series producers, those people who have employed, give as much information as you can about the work that you have done. And as I said, potential employers will call the people you've worked with rather than necessarily the very neat listing of referees. It's based on trust. So a CV also enables potential employers to identify, verify and contact you. It's quite remarkable the number of CVs I saw on Saturday that just didn't have what you did. Now, I talked about it with a few of you individually. Or actually maybe didn't have an email address. Or didn't sometimes have a mobile number. At least not anywhere obvious. The myth of the paperless office is just that. It is a myth. In busy production offices, when looking for directors or researchers or sometimes even writers, they will look at a pile of biographies or CVs that will have been... You know, printed out and put in a pile and certainly when looking for technical crew and they will go through those and they will look through them so if there isn't your name what you do and your contact details in a very very prevalent position it can end up in the wrong file it can end up getting thrown away give it as much chance as possible put your job title your email address your mobile phone number your website if you've got one no contact details no contact so 
A CV is your career summary. It is not your life story. It is not a way of defending yourself about all the jobs you haven't done yet. Everybody starts somewhere. If you've only got three credits, that's fine. Just make as much of those credits as you can and be specific and make them feel like those skills, whatever they might be, are transferable to the job you're going for and it isn't one size fits all. So construct a good, neat, attractive looking CV. One that's easy to gain the information from, that has space around it, that talks in a relevant way about practical equipment, any skills you have. Don't list all your unpaid jobs unless they're award-winning, all your student films unless they're award-winning. And if you're using a personal or mission statement, which we'll just come on to, make it unique to you. Do not have a CV like this, and I have seen them. Like, Don't try too hard, really. They just look appalling, and they're just so difficult to get the information out of. Argument I always have with camera department, camera departments see the world in landscape. They always have landscape CVs. That's fine, I accept that. Other than that, I'd be inclined to say portrait. Be honest, don't over-egg your experience. If you've just done you know, a few days as a second unit director, say that. Don't try to imply you've done more. And remove the pictures of yourselves. It takes up a lot of valuable space, and I'm not employing you as a writer or a director or a DOP because you're terribly attractive. I'm employing you because you're bloody good at what you do, yeah? Um, and the clapperboards, all those cliched things that people put as pretty little pictures. Nah, really, just don't do it. Okay, so format for success. Be brief, make use of the white space. You'd use a readable typeface. Uh, don't you know, try and do something incredibly weird and wonderful with your typeface. And again, something I said quite a lot on Saturday, most of the people who are going to be reading your CVs or your biogs are probably more my age than your age. Our eyes are starting to go. Really, we don't do well with an eight-point font. It just makes us feel a bit middle-aged and grumpy. So a readable size font, please, would be nice. Um, and also, great paragraphs of italics are very difficult to read, so don't use them. And think about when you've done your CV online and it looks beautiful online, print it off, see what it looks like printed off, because sometimes they can look very, very different. So cut and paste information carefully. Don't use generic statements. Don't use too many typefaces or colors, and don't use a tiny typeface. So make sure you can be proud of your CV because it is that first impression that next potential employer has of you. God, we're doing well here. Okay, your personal statement mission statement, that paragraph at the top of your CV. It highlights the best bits of your CV if you can get it right. It's like a trailer for a movie. It can be incredibly useful because just a list of credits can feel really, really impersonal. So it can be a concise overview to get people interested. You need to write it with a potential employer in mind. It's about what you can offer them rather than what you can get. I see an awful lot of kind of personal statements that say, I am looking for the opportunity to expand my skills in. I would like to develop my career as. That's great. What are you giving them? Twist it the other way around. Think of that person who is reading it. So again, it needs to be dynamic, edited to fit specific you know, roles that you are going to take. 
Bear in mind they are like Marmite and some employers absolutely hate them. One of the things we say a lot is if you're struggling with a personal statement, get a mate in the industry to write two or three sentences about you. Because at the other end of the spectrum, I think we're probably really bad in this country about saying, actually, you know, I am good at this and these are my skills and I'm going to say that in a concise and clear and upfront trumpet-blowing kind of way at the beginning of my CV. If you're finding that really a bit icky-making, get somebody else to do it for you, to come up with two or three specific sentences that talk about you. If you can get it right then it can really help that brand that is you have a kind of cohesion and homogeneity to it across many platforms. You can use it on your CV, you can use it on your LinkedIn profile, your Twitter, you can use it, you know, a sentence out of it when you're introducing yourself to people and you can use it on jobs boards. So it can be a very, very useful thing to have. So, this is one we had. I'm passionate about working in film and have always wanted to be a sound mixer, which is something I achieved during my time at university. I'm hard-working, punctual, and a good team player with an ear for a good take. Any comments on what might be wrong with that? You think it's okay? Okay. Well, actually, let's talk. Passionate. A lot of people talk about passion in this industry. And passion, when you're Otto Bathurst and you had the passion to direct Peaky Blinders in the way that he did, or John Crowley with um, Brooklyn or whomsoever, that's fine. But just being generically passionate, it's a bit sort of blamange really, isn't it? You know, how have you demonstrated this passion? Show, don't tell. That's what this industry is all about. Don't start using generic words unless you can back them up in some way. I've always wanted to be a sound mixer, which is something I achieved during uni- my time at university. University, university. You're in the professional world now. Hard-working, punctual, and a good team player. I would hope everybody in this industry is. And with an ear for a good take. Well, you know, okay, if you're applying for a job as a sound recordist, that might be useful. But if you're applying for a job as a sound assistant, do your own job, not my job. So it's absolutely just, it's a bit flaccid, really. So better better example for somebody working in sound department, sound trainee with experience of working across a range of short films, commercials and music videos, fluent in French, with dual British-Canadian passport and a clean clean driving licence. It's short, it's clear, it's specific and it's pretty unique to that person. Gives me something that the credits in their CV probably aren't going to, but it tells me something kind of interesting as well. A lot of people who are bilingual, they tuck it somewhere away at the bottom of the second page. Now, it's amazing the number of times as an agent I will get a call going, I really need an editor who can speak Spanish. I really need a director who can speak French. These things can be and are useful, so highlight them. So basically, no mission statement is better than a bad one. Only start using one if you can find a way of putting it together that feels comfortable. It's getting in contact, staying in touch. The basics are, if you get somebody's card and you want to build a relationship with them, just email to say thank you and how lovely it was to meet them. Make every email personal. If you make them generic and you're doing that forwarding thing from the first email, you will screw it up. You will mention the wrong thing that related to the person before. I know it saves you a bit of time, but really try and make them all personal. And follow up with the information that you promised or say something that they said has had a positive impact on you. Make it personal. Reference back to where and how you met them. 
and always right to thank someone who has taken the time to meet with you. I'm sure you all think you will. It's a num amazing the number of people who just don't. I'm sure they mean to, and then something else happens, and a couple of days later, they think, oh, shit, it's too late to do that now. You know, I once met an American producer um, from one of the studios uh, several years ago, and it was at a networking event. By the end of the evening, he had sent me an email, and I'm sure everybody else he met and whose cards he had got that evening, just a very quick two-liner saying thank you. It's incredibly impressive. It looks very, very professional. Get it done. Say the thank yous. So keeping in contact, email those key contacts occasionally when you have an update. Tell them something new about yourself. So if you've got a new contract, if you've produced a new piece of work, that is a really good reason to get in contact. So use that. Make sure that you have got that database of contacts that you can refer to, that you can use, and you will keep getting back in contact with. Not just when you hear they've got some amazing job or they've been promoted. I mean, do say congratulations, of course, but don't make it feel like you are only contacting them when you want something from them. Yeah? Update them on your experience or help them with some information that might be useful to them or an article that might be of interest to them, depending on the conversations you've been having. Again, this is a real example of how not to do it. Hope you're well. Just letting you know my availability. I am working for the next six weeks now on Coronation Street. I searched through my email to check, but could you just com confirm for me that it's Emily I need to contact about setting up a one-to-one, -one, and I will take an afternoon off, hopefully very soon. This is from a trainee we looked after about setting up a meeting with me. Emily was my assistant then. I was like, oh my God, there's a lot of work we need to do here. <laughs> but it, it's that just grammar, spelling, but also... Don't ask busy people to do. Could you just confirm for me? Check it yourself. Find out those things yourself. All of the many problems in that. So remember, there are lots of ways to stay gently in touch with people. Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, industry events, all the stuff we've been talking about. A friend of mine said years ago, who works not in this industry, in uh, computer sales, and they do huge mass marketing and mailed outs and you know, marketing campaigns. And they, like most industries, work on a return basis of 5%. 5% just return of any interest, not 5% return employment or purchase of their products. So think about that when you're sending out 10 emails and wondering why you haven't got any back. You know, don't think that that means that your emails are just going into the ether. It is a drip-drip effect. It is reminding people about you. They just probably, most people are not going to respond most of the time. Don't get too disheartened about that. So in summary, be persistent, reach out to as many people as you can, and be professional and courteous. So, interview technique. Two more sections to go, we're nearly there. Know a bit about the company that are making the show that you're going up for, obviously. Watch other shows that are good reference points. And for some roles, it can really help to come with a portfolio, a soundscape, whatever it is, to really prove that you've kind of keyed into the creative aspects of that job. And on the day, interviews are really, really nerve-wracking. You know, I still find them nerve-wracking if I'm trying to get my clients' work and I'm doing it on somebody else's behalf. So as prepped as you can be is going to make you feel more confident. But remember, it's a two-way street. 
You want to find stuff out from them as well. You want to know whether this job, this assignment, is something you're going to want to do. So, you know, hold that sense of kind of status to yourself as well. It is a two-way street. It's not just about them doing you some enormous favor by the idea that they might employ you or they might give you a writing assignment. So just maybe know three things you want to get across in the room. Not loads more, but what are the three key things about yourself, your talent, your experience, your work that you want to get across in that room? If you just think of it as two or three, then you're more likely in the heat of the moment to remember those. Don't be scared of silences, of taking a moment if you're asked a difficult question, of, you know, that's a really good question. I'm just going to think about that for a minute. We all get very, very scared of silences. Have positive reactions, positive body language. A good handshake really, really helps rather than the limp fish variety. And there are a lot of limp fish varieties out there because that impression is created so instantly as you go into that room. And if a bad or negative impression is created the moment you connect with that person, it's very, very hard to undo it during the process of that interview. Ask questions and remember to keep breathing. Obviously, I know that sounds obvious, but it's amazing when we're feeling really nervous and we talk a great, and you just, and you just start feeling a bit peculiar. It happens to, uh, I have heads of department, that still happens too. They really have to concentrate on the, I am just going to keep breathing in a normal way here. So what do heads of department or employers look for? Good first impressions, as we've been saying. So many people I talk to in production companies or the people I represent, it is the stuck in the submarine thing. We know you've got the talents. We've proven that by looking at your showreel, by talking to other people. What we want to see when you're there in the room with us is do we want to be stuck in a submarine with you for six weeks or six months? Now, people think that getting jobs is all about the hard skills, the technical skills, the writing talent, the directing talent. Yes, of course, of course those things are important. But what will help you to move your career faster and more effectively are these soft skills. Are being that person that people want to work with. It does make a difference. I'm sure most of you are terribly, terribly charming. I'm sure all of you are terribly charming. But it's worth working on those skills. So a good, enthusiastic energy and a positive can-do attitude. Don't go around bitching about your last job, your last employer, the last person who employed you to write something for them and how they didn't understand what an artist you were and how amazingly creative you were. Really, it's just not attractive, ever. Manners, say thank you for them meeting you. Whether you get the job or not, thank them. And graciousness, as I say, in the face of rejection. So, final section, making good decisions and negotiating good deals. Jobs, like we were saying right at the beginning, a lot of freelancers just feel they're swayed by, blown by the wind and take jobs because they're offered them. But actually step back from it and work out what informs your decision to take or to turn down a job because your career will be defined as much by the jobs you don't take as the jobs that you do take. So it's a quid pro quo. What are you giving and what are you gaining? And that can be about money, but sometimes on very low budget jobs, it ain't going to be about the money. Is it about prestige? Is it about contacts? Is it about actually you just really like these people and you want to work with them? And do you know what? That's fine. But know what it is you're giving and know what it is you're getting back. 
Should you do freebies? Again, same principles apply. If you are going to do them and be wary of them, know why you're doing them. Don't just keep repeating it because you think that's the best work you can get at the moment. Because there's so many compromises creatively and artistically on freebies. A lot of the time, to be blunt, they're not worth doing. But some really good people start their careers by getting a group of filmmakers together and doing a freebie. So yeah, just really know who those people are, what they're going to want out of you, and where that film, if it's a short film, if you feel that they've got half a brain about them and they're really kind of understanding the festival circuit, where's it going to be shown, what kind of people are they connected with, ask lots of questions. When it comes to deal making, and we could do hours on deal making, but we're not going to, we're going to spend two minutes. Um, people who name their price first often lose. That is a basic rule of thumb of negotiating, which is something I do on a daily basis. So if you can, when offered a job, try and get them to tell you what they are expecting to pay. Basic rule being that sometimes you can up that a little, or more likely at an early stage in your career, you are probably going to undercharge them anyway. If you name your price, they will probably bring you down. So try and ask them what they've got in their budget. Before you go in for that conversation or that email exchange, make sure you know some industry comparisons, what your mates are earning doing the same kind of jobs. TV rate cards can sometimes be helpful. And again, the power of silence. If you're negotiating on the phone with somebody and they say, okay, well, you know, we've only got 90 quid for the day, and you go, well, I'm sorry, I was really hoping for a little more than that. It gets really, really embarrassing. And everything that is probably nice and well brought up in you wants to fill that silence and go, oh, yeah, okay, I'll do it for 90 quid. <laughs> Don't. Be bold. Be silence warriors. <laughs> Let them break first. I did it with an American negotiation years ago when I first started dealing with American studios. And it was for one of my production designers. It was exactly that kind of conversation. And I sat there with the second hand on my watch, and it was in the evening because it was an American guy I was dealing with. And I watched 45 seconds go round, and I kept silent. <laughs> and he, then he broke the silence. He said, OK, I think we can come up a little. He had every intention of coming up a little. He was just making me sweat for it. But it worked, and it made me feel really powerful. <laughs> so, OK, you're on the job. This has all worked. You've got the job. You're there. What happens when things go wrong? Who to approach? How do you handle tricky people, difficult situations? Again, can't do this in two minutes. They're going to happen. Whether that's as a writer, because somebody doesn't like what you've done and you feel the brief was really kind of confusing and they didn't say at the time what it was they wanted until you handed them the work, or as a director or as a technician. I think the one rule I would probably give in this room in a very brief way is don't react in the moment. Reacting in the moment is the worst thing you can do. Walk away from the situation. Have a cup of tea, talk to a friend, talk to your mum, sleep on it. Just don't react. And if you're having a difficult time on set, you know, again, you should be able to talk to your head of department, you should be able to talk to other departments, you should be able to talk to your producer or line producer, but go away and think about it. Sometimes overnight, you wake up the next morning and you think, do you know what, I was really tired and I just need to go back in there and apologise and it was probably 50% me. Sometimes it's not. 
And there is unacceptable behavior that happens on sets from time to time. But it will only change and people will only treat people better if you tell somebody and do something about it. So if it feels like unacceptable behavior, it probably is unacceptable behavior. But you're that next generation of filmmakers, you get to change it. Is it ever okay to leave a job before the end? The rule of thumb on that is yes, I have clients that do it. If you're on a tiny, tiny little TV job and you get offered a, bit, a role on a big, big movie, of course, from time to time in your career, it is acceptable. But don't just walk in going, so I've been offered a role on the Spielberg movie over at Leaves and I'm off, bye. Ask, ask. I know, you know, it may be a formality and you're gonna do it anyway, but if it's couched in a question, would you mind, this is a really big break, would you be prepared to release me? It looks a hell of a lot better. So, moving forward and upward, in any career, you should have goals. Set yourselves goals. 90 days, one year, five years, pipe dream goals that you don't tell anybody, goals that you tell lots of people so you have to live up to them. Look to gradually increasing your rate as you go along, and then with all of these, please God, you will feel you have some control and that you are able to make some choices and then manage those choices that you're making. And good luck. Uh, so um, the main thing I do, I'm a cinematographer, but I also started to direct and I directed two shorts, so like the beginning director. And uh, would it be confusing to put uh, both, uh, because I've got a cinematography website, should I call myself like a cinematographer slash director or it would be confusing for you? For I think it's potentially confusing. The danger is that who is going to be looking at your cinematographer website is probably going to be directors. And if they then see director cinematographer, they're going to go, oh my God, he's my competition. Why would I want? He'll be trying to take over. You know, I think that's the danger. So maybe two different websites. Yeah. Thanks. Hi, I was wondering, I'm with a diary service and I'm mainly paying on commercials. Oh. But I really want to crack into feature films, but then nobody wants to touch me with a stick because I'm doing commercials. <laughs> you don't want them to touch you with a stick, <laughs> you just want them to offer you a job, right? So I was wondering what's the best way to like, crack into features from a commercials background. From a commercials background, yeah. and so many people in features want to get into commercials. It's ironic, isn't it? Um, I think so, you're at a PAing level. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and presumably you've been sending your CV out to feature films and you're just getting no response? Yep. Okay. Um, would you be prepared to look at going down a rung to work in feature films to kind of like a, a production runner, production secretary role? Yep. Okay, then you start need to do exactly what you're doing today, which is starting to network more with features people. Um, do you know the Production Guild? go to their networking events as well because you'll get a lot of feature film, line producers, etc. But you need to be finding, you know, and their names are there on credits. As, you know, the best you can, you need to be finding the production sec secretaries, the production co coordinators, the assistant coordinators. Find them personally. A really good way of getting in with people is to ask them for advice rather than a job. Yeah. So contact assistant coordinators ask them what their story is, say, you know, could you go and buy them coffee for half an hour? It is hard moving between areas, but it is possible. You've just got to be really, again, strategic about it and contact lots and lots of people and make them your best friend. You know, and again, maybe if you know of people, you know, good, credible young filmmakers who are doing shorts, get involved with those, win your spurs that way on the film side as well. Yeah? Cool, thank you. 
Uh, I was just wondering, what do you think is the best approach, like in these situations of networking events where everybody's trying to, to like show off themselves and like trying to, you know, like everybody's like she's like all fishes trying to go to the same thing and everybody's trying to show their talent and yeah. everything. What do you think is the best approach, like in these situations? Okay, it's it's like I was trying to say earlier. No, of the events you're going to at, at, at something like this, know who a couple of the key people are that you want to meet. Do you mean like with panelists when you've got those directors and producers up there? Yeah, it can be really difficult because there's a queue of people. But sometimes if you're prepared to kind of wait outside, then you might meet them as they're coming out and you can just, just in order to give them your card or maybe get their card. I think a lot of the, the people who are generous enough to give their time at events like this, you can pass emails to them, possibly through BAFTA, possibly through their agents. Most agents, certainly of people behind the camera, are pretty decent. Most agents full stop are pretty decent. So if it's a director or a producer that you didn't manage to talk to here write to their agent, email their agent and say, look, I met so-and-so or you know, I heard so-and-so speak, would you pass this email on to them? So there's that way of doing it if you don't get to talk to those people. But talk to other people. You know, again, also, <laughs> not, I'm not saying go and harangue the BAFTA team who are making it, but you get to know them as well. They're amazing. They can be incredibly helpful and useful. So just don't beat up on yourself because you haven't spoken to loads of people. If you've managed to key into a couple of good people during the day, then you're doing really well. Yeah. What do you think of the websites of like production companies that say that they don't want to be contacted with anything? They don't want unsolicited materials. And so I look at a company that I really want to work for mm. and I'm terrified of sending a CV. And do they say don't contact us? Yeah. Okay. But I do want to get in touch with them. But you want to get in touch with them. Then you need to work it round in a more strategic way. What what do you do? Well now I'm in I'm an executive assistant actually in a studio. Right. And I want to move into production. You want to move into production. Okay. Then what I would probably be doing is I would be finding again people slightly lower down the food chain within that company. I'd be looking on LinkedIn, I'd be looking on Twitter, I'd be seeing if I can get directly in contact with any of those people and build a relationship that way as to how they got into the company and then see if they can be of assistance to you. And, you know, if they have a head of production, again, try and find them through LinkedIn, through Twitter, through their agents, some heads of production. I represent some heads of production, certainly line producers. Talk to other freelancers who've worked for that company. Go round about it. But if, some, if an entity is saying to you, don't send us unsolicited material and we don't want unsolicited contact, don't go directly at them. Because they mean it because, you know, we just advertised for a job and we're a very small company. We've had over 400 responses, which is fantastic, but it's you know, really difficult to wade through. And that's why companies say it. There is a logic. They're not just trying to keep people out, but see if they have, you know, intern programs, work placements, that kind of thing. Thanks. Um, I am a director of photography and I got a few credits in shorts and I have uh, one feature film. However, when I'm looking for, for work, as a, sometimes I see ads for camera operators, and well, I apply for them, and I have a website that it says uh, director of photography. Mm. However, I have been told by some people in the industry with, that maybe 
I shouldn't be saying that I am a director of photography, that I should lower down myself, my profile, in order to get I those jobs. I think it's, it's so, that being specific thing, again, like I said yeah, to the other gentleman. So I'm a little bit confused because sometimes I see myself changing the website quickly to, let's say, lighting camera operator, <laughs> and then I'm struggling to how to handle that, to be honest. I think, you know, don't put your website on the email that you're sending off as a camera operator. They might still find it, but they're less likely to. They're less likely to look in that place for it. I think you just have to be clear on a job-by-job basis. It is hard when you're working at different levels or make it very clear in your covering email that although you have done some work as a director of photography on smaller projects, you really want to work as an operator with this director of photography on this show and the reasons you want to do that. Thanks to Sarah for hosting this session in partnership with Sarah Part Associates. If you want to hear more tips about managing a career in film, TV or games, then visit BAFTA Guru at bafta.org forward slash guru.